Uh, good evening, everyone. Um, I'm just here to introduce the introducer. Uh, I'm glad to see you all here. Uh, I need to thank a few people before we get started and to remind you to turn your cell phones off and any other uh, electronic devices. Um, you can also turn them to silent. They don't have to be off. Uh, I need to thank the Literature Department, the Dean's Office of Arts and Humanities, UCSD's MFA program, and the Sims family for their generous support of our reading series. Uh, thanks to our RAs in the MFA program, Rachel and Frankie, who plug these devices in. Uh, and finally, thanks to Special Collections uh, in the library uh, for recording and archiving the new writing series. These are available on podcasts shortly after um, the reading, so check them out. There's some fantastic stuff, including this, this evening's reader. So in the future. So Michael Davidson is here to introduce you. Well, it's, uh, it's great to welcome Clayton Eshelman back to UCSD. He taught for us for a while, some years ago, and has been closely identified with Southern California, although he's been living in Ypsilanti uh, for more recent years, where he is a professor emeritus at Eastern Michigan University. Um, it's a real honor to have Clayton here. I, I, was thinking about um, once hearing somebody introduce Paul, the poet Paul Blackburn as uh, being described as a true servant of poetry. And it was referring to Blackburn's important work as a poet, editor, and translator. And I think the same could be said of Clayton Eshelman. Uh, he's the author of over 40 books of poetry and translation and prose. And as today's um, reading will verify, one of the definitive translators of our time, he's translated the complete works of Cesar Vallejo and Aimé Césaire, as well as collections by Michel de Guy, Pablo Neruda, Antonin Artaud, uh, Vladimir Holan, Henri Michaud, and Bernard Badur, among others. And these uh, translations have earned him and his fellow co-translators in many case, cases uh, international acclaim. He received a National Book Award, a Guggenheim Fellowship, many grants from the National Endowment for the Arts and the National Endowment for the Humanities, and two Landon Translation Prizes from the Academy of American Poets. Um, he's also the editor of two of the most significant journals of the post-war period, and for, at least for my generation, uh, Caterpillar, the first of those journals, and then Sulphur, are uh, landmarks in documenting um, innovative tendencies in post-war American poetry, but the American has to be in quotes because it was actually an international, these were international journals that really brought together innovative traditions in U.S. poetry with uh, uh, poetry from, um, uh, from all over the world, Europe and Africa and uh, Latin America and, uh, and East Asia and so forth. These were really significant journals. And his editorial um, talents uh, allowed these journals to go on for many, many issues. Many, many famous journals of the New American Poetry would exist for five journals, and the editors said, that's enough, stop. And Clayton would carry these things on. I don't know, Sulphur must have gone on for how many issues? Uh, 19 years, 46 issues. 46 issues. Any of you who have edited a little magazine will know that that's really heroism. Um, his most recent books of poetry include uh, My Devotion, an Alchemist with One Eye on Fire, Reciprocal Distillations, and Anticline. 
And there is a Clayton Eshelman reader that was published by Black Widow, which has a wonderful title, The Grindstone of Rapport. He's also published recently three collections of prose, Companion Spider, Archaic Design, and Juniper Fuse, colon, Upper Paleolithic Imagination and the Construction of the Underworld that Wesleyan University Press published. And this last title is the culmination of Clayton's long involvement and research into the Upper Paleolithic period in the painted caves of southwestern Europe, an area that he knows very well from having led tours to various of these caves uh, for, for some years in the Dordogne region. The poet Adrian Rich has written of him, quote, Clayton Eshelman has gone more deeply into his art, its processes, and demands than any modern American poet since Robert Duncan and Muriel Rukeyser. As a poet, Eshelman has wrestled with his vocation and in some senses created himself through poetry. He has written on the self-making and apprenticeship of the poet and of the poet as translator as no one else in North America in the later 20th century. He has written perceptively about visual art and its relationship to contemporary poetics, and he has delivered stinging critiques of mediocrity and cautiousness in the standardizing of poetic canons." Unquote. Today we're honoring uh, Clayton's recent translation of Aimé Césaire's uh, Soleil Coucoupé, which he translates as Solar Throat Slashed, uh, which was first published in 1948 with engravings by the surrealist artist Hans Hartung. And of course Césaire was um, strongly identified with the Negritude movement, which was centered in the French Antilles, but which had offices throughout Europe, Africa, and Latin America. It was a movement that fused surrealism and post-colonialism, histories of slavery with modernist dislocation and exile. Clayton Eshelman and his uh, co-translator, James Arnold, have done a masterful job of rendering Césaire's notoriously difficult linguistic play, neologisms, and contorted syntax. He is sensitive to the explosive, often embodied quality of the poet's language. Uh, by bringing back almost 40% of the original text of Soule Coucoupé that Césaire cut out in 1961, Eshelman and Arnold have restored the great Martinican's commitment to surrealist practice and linked it to his equally powerful indictment of colonialism, demonstrating vividly that avant-garde's commitment to a revolution of the word is also a revolution of the social totality. It's a great accomplishment, it's a beautiful book, and it's a great pleasure to welcome Clayton Eshelman to UCSD. I was going to give a an introduction to Césaire, but I think that Michael has covered some of the points that I was going to make, so I will just make a few comments uh, about Césaire before reading from Solar Throat Slash. Oh, this is the piece I was going to give you, oh, the piece on the notebook. The French writer Michel Leris has described Césaire's lifelong relationship with Surrealism in the following words. Césaire's revolt sprang from his daily experience of injustice against the group with which he was aligned, a group that the Martinican ruling class, supported by metropolitan France, allows to stagnate in poverty and despises for its physical features as well. That is why it should not be surprising that Césaire's surrealism takes on an especially harsh and dense quality, something like a volcanic explosion which has no need to place itself, quote, in the service of the revolution, unquote, 
since it was already of the same nature, having been born of the direct pressure of those harsh realities that opened the way to revolutionary movements. Uh, for, for those of you who are hearing of Césaire the first time, I should also point out that he was born in Basse Pointe, Martinique in 1913, and he died in Fort de France, the capital, in 2008. Uh, in 1944, he accepted an invitation to run on the Communist Party ticket and was not only elected mayor of Fort de France, the capital, but became a deputy to the French National Assembly in Paris as well. So imagine Walt Whitman as the mayor of Washington, D.C., <laughs> as well as a Maryland senator. <laughs> Addressing Césaire's most famous single poem that I understand some of you in the, in the audience are reading, The Notebook of a Return to the Native Land. It's, it's the kingpin, and if you want to enter Césaire's world, why this is fundamental. Andre Breton, who wrote a wonderful essay on this, on Césaire and the poem, which we've translated in our collection, he writes, it is a black who handles the French language in a manner that no white man is capable of today. And it is a black who guides us today into the unexplored, establishing along the way, as if by child's play, the contacts that make us advance on sparks. And it is a black who is not only a black, but all of man, who conveys all of man's questionings, all of his anguish, all of his hopes, and all of his ecstasies, and who will remain more and more for me the prototype of dignity. Beautiful statement. Besides a half a dozen collections of poetry, three plays, and several extended essays, Césaire has also produced many interviews, articles, and speeches. He is unique among 20th century black poets for the extent to which he never ceased to be black while drawing upon and assimilating into his work a full range of Western literature and philosophy, including Rambeau, Lautréamont, Mallarmé, Nietzsche, Marx, and Freud. He has a very rich and at times baffling vocabulary but it all tests out. The, he, he doesn't invent words. He just uses often Latinate names of fauna and flora. And uh, I went to, in, to talk with him on three occasions with my word lists while Annette and I were translating him in the late 70s and early 80s. It's when my adventure with Césaire began. And at one point he told me that I asked him about these uh, complicated words for trees and plants and serpents and stuff like that. And he said, well, he said, one of the conditions of being colonized is to find that you are vague. He said, colonization turns you into a person who is constantly vague about your life and about the world around you. And he said, when I was a young boy, um, I was taken on field trips by my, high, my grade school teacher, and he would point out all of the things that we were looking at, the creatures, the leaves, the flowers and stuff. And he said these were not in any textbook because we all had textbooks from mainland France which did not recognize the existence of Martinique in this way. And uh, here is a statement that he made in 1960 and this sort of expands on the point that I just made. He says, I am an Antillian. I want a poetry that is concrete, very Antillian. Martinican. I must name Martinican things, must call them by their names. The Kenya fistula, mentioned in spirals, 
is a tree. It is also called the drumstick tree. It has large yellow leaves, and its fruit are those big purplish, bluish black pods used here also as a purgative. The balisier resembles a plantain, but it has a red heart, a red fluorescence at its center that is really shaped like a heart. The cecropias are shaped like silvery hands, yes, like the interior of a black's hand. All of these astonishing words are absolutely necessary. They are never gratuitous. So, uh, I'll now read nine poems from Solar Throat Slashed, and then after that I'll read a few pieces of my own from Anticline. And if any of you have any comments or <coughs> questions at the end of the reading, why, I'll do my best to respond. Preliminary question. As for me, should they grab my leg, I vomit up a forest of lianas. Should they hang me by my fingernails, I piss a camel bearing a pope and vanish in a row of fig trees that quite neatly encircle the intruder and strangle him in a beautiful tropical balancing act. The weakness of many men is that they do not know how to become either a stone or a tree. As for me, I sometimes fit sulfurous wicks between my boa fingers for the sole pleasure of bursting into flame of new poinsettia leaves all evening long, reds and greens trembling in the wind like our dawn in my throat. Mississippi. Too bad for you men who don't notice that my eyes remember slings and black flags that murder with each blink of my Mississippi lashes. Too bad for you men who do not see, who do not see anything, not even the gorgeous railway signals formed under my eyelids by the black and red discs of the coral snake that my munificence coils in my Mississippi tears. Too bad for you men who do not see that in the depth of the reticule where chance has deposited our Mississippi eyes, their weights of buffalo sunk to the very hilt of the swamp's eyes. Too bad for you men who do not see that you cannot stop me from building to his fill egg-headed islands of flagrant sky under the calm ferocity of the immense geranium of our sun. The next is a short prose poem that was my introduction to Césaire in 1960 in Emile Snyder, an early Césaire translator's translation. It appeared in a little journal called Hip Pocket Poems, edited by Jack Hirschman. And uh, it, it, it really disturbed me, and I was wandering around trying to digest the poem for weeks. And so I said, well, I must find out more about who Amy Césaire is. So that was the hole that led me into the wonderland. Lynch One. Why does spring grab me by the throat? What does it want of me? So what if it does not have enough spears and banners? I jeer at you, Spring, for flaunting your blind eye and your bad breath, 
your debauchery, your corrupt kisses. Your peacock's tail makes spirit tables turn with patches of jungle, fanfares of marching sap. But my liver is more acidic and my venefice stronger than your malefice. Lynch, it's 6 p.m. in the mud of the bayou. It's a black handkerchief fluttering atop a pirate ship mast. It's the strangulation point of a fingernail in the carmine of an interjection. It's the pompa. It's the queen's ballet. It's the sagacity of science. It's the unforgettable coitus. Oh, lynch, salt, mercury, and antimony. Lynch is the blue smile of a dragon enemy of angels. Lynch is an orchid too lovely to bear fruit. Lynch is an entry into matter. Lynch is the hand of the wind bloodying a forest whose trees are galls, brandishing in their hands the living flame of their castrated phalli. Lynch is a hand sprinkled with the dust of precious stones. Lynch is a release of humming birds. Lynch is a lapse. Lynch is a trumpet blast, a broken gramophone record, a cyclone's tail dragged by the pink beaks of raptors. Lynch is a gorgeous chevalure that dread flings into my face. Lynch is a temple destroyed by roots and gripped by a virgin forest. Oh, Lynch, lovable companion, beautiful squirted eye, huge mouth mute, unless a jerking there spills the delirium of mucus. Weave well, lightning bolt, on your loom, a continent exploding into islands, an oracle contortedly slithering like a scolopendra, a moon settling in the breach, the sulfur peacock ascending in the succinct murderous hole of my assassinated hearing. This next piece, Rain, which is around 30 lines long, in the revision, which, which Michael Davidson touched on, uh, and which, from my viewpoint, why well, Cesaire really gelded uh, Solar Throat Slashed and turned it into a very innocent collection of poetry. Uh, this piece was cut to four lines. It's called Rain. After I had by iron, by fire, by ash, visited the most celebrated places in history, after I had by ash, fire, earth, and stars courted with my wild dog and leech-like fingernails the authoritarian field of protoplasms, I found myself, as usual, in the old days, in the middle of a factory of viper's nests, in a Ganges of cacti, in an elaboration of thorny pilgrimages. And as usual, I was salivated by limbs and tongues born a thousand years before the earth. And as usual, I made my morning prayer, the one that protects me from the evil eye and that I address to the rain under the Aztec color of its name. Rain who so gently washes a perverse injection from the earth's academic vagina, all-powerful rain who on the chopping block makes the fingers of the rocks leap, rain who force-feeds an army of worms no mulberry forest could nourish, rain-inspired strategist who pushes across the mirror of the air your zigzag army of numberless riverbanks that cannot not surprise the best-kept boredom. Rain, wasp nest, 
beautiful milk whose piglets we are. Rain, I see your hair, which is a perpetual explosion of sandbox tree fireworks, your hair of misinformation promptly denied. Rain, who in your most reprehensible excesses takes care not to forget that Cherokee maidens pull suddenly from their night corsage a lamp of thrilling fireflies. Inflexible rain, who lays eggs, whose larvae are so proud that nothing can make them mount the stern of the sun and salute it like an admiral. Rain, who is a fresh fish fan, behind which courteous races hide to watch victory with its dirty feet pass by. Greetings to you, Queen Rain, in the depths of the eternal goddess whose hands are multiple and whose destiny is unique, thou sperm, thou brain, thou fluid. Rain, capable of everything, except washing away the blood that flows on the fingers of the murderers of entire peoples surprised in the soaring forests of innocence. The first word in the next poem is Spanish, aguacero, and it means a brief sudden shower or downpour. Blues. Aguacero, beautiful musician, unclothed at the foot of a tree, amidst the lost harmonies, close to our defeated memories, amidst our hands of defeat, and peoples of a strength strange, we let our eyes hang, and native, loosing the leading rein of a sorrow, we wept. <clears throat> In this next piece, I think that Césaire is addressing what must be for him the origin of slavery in the ancient Arab world. Um, and there is a figure in the first line called Master of the Three Paths, which I believe is the Vodun Legba, or God, the Loa invoked to open a path between this world and the spirit world. And the three places mentioned are all very early cities in Mesopotamia. All the way from Akkad, from Elam, from Sumer. Master of the three paths, you have before you a man who has walked a lot. Master of the three paths, you have before you a man who has walked on his hands, on his feet, on his belly, on his backside. All the way from Elam, from Akkad, from Sumer. Master of the three paths, you have before you a man who has carried a lot. And truly, my friends, I have carried, I have carried all the way from Elam, from Akkad, from Sumer. I have carried the commandant's body. I have carried the commandant's railroad. I have carried the commandant's locomotive, the commandant's cotton. 
I've carried on my nappy head that gets along just fine without a little cushion. God, the machine, the road, the commandant's God. Master of the three paths, I have carried under the sun, I have carried in the mist, I have carried over the ember shards of legionary ants. I have carried the parasol, I have carried the explosives, I have carried the iron collar, and, as on the shores of the Nile you see in the soft mud, the just foot of the ibis, I have left everywhere on the banks, on the mountains, on the shores, the gree-gree of my can-can feet, all the way from Akkad, from Elam, from Sumer. Master of the three paths, master of the three channels, may it please you for once, the first time since Akkad, since Elam, since Sumer, my muzzle apparently more tan than the calluses on my feet, but in reality softer than the crow's scrupulous beak, and as if draped supernaturally in bitter folds, provided by my borrowed gray skin, a livery men force on to me, every winter, that I may advance through the dead leaves with my little sorcerer steps, toward where the inexhaustible injunction of men thrown to the knotted sneers of the hurricane threatens triumphantly, all the way from Elam, from Akkad, from Sumer. Uh, this is, next piece for me is in many ways the most interesting poem in the collection. It's called At the Locks of the Void. And I see Césaire affirming his integrity as a man and Martinican at the end of the Second World War as he contemplates the ruins of the cities of the colonized world. And at the very end, he comes in very hard on Europe. And when he revised this piece, the last three lines were turned into one line, one phrase, that in translation would read, eminent hiccup. And you'll notice that the last three lines in the original version are much more fulgurating than that. At the locks of the void. In the foreground and in longitudinal flight, a dried up brook, drowsy roller of obsidian pebbles. In the background, a decidedly not calm architecture of torn down bergs, of eroded mountains on whose glimpsed phantom, serpents, chariots, a cat's eye, and alarming constellations are born. It is a strange firefly cake hurled into the gray face of time, a vast scree of shards of icons and blazons of lice in the beard of Saturn. On the right, very curiously standing against the squamous wall of crucified butterfly wings open in majesty, a gigantic bottle whose very long golden neck drinks a drop of blood in the clouds. As for me, I'm no longer thirsty. It gives me pleasure to think of the world undone like an old copra mattress, like an old voodoo necklace, like the perfume of a felled 
peccary. I am no longer thirsty. All heads belong to me. It is sweet to be gentle as a lamb. It is sweet to open the great sluice gates of gentleness. Through the staggered sky, through the exploded stars, through the tutelary silence, from very far beyond myself I come toward you, woman sprung from a beautiful laburnum. And your eyes, wounds, barely closed on your modesty at being born. It is I who sings with a voice still caught up in the babbling of elements. It is sweet to be a piece of wood, a cork, a drop of water in the torrential waters of the end and of the new beginning. It is sweet to doze off in the shattered heart of things. I no longer have any sort of thirst. My sword made from a shark's tooth smile is becoming terribly useless. My mace is very obviously out of season and out of play. Rain is falling. It is a crisscross of rubble. It is a skein of iron for reinforced concrete. It is an incredible stowage of the invisible by first-rate ties. It is a branch work of syphilis. It is the diagram of a brandy bender. It is the graphic representation of a seismic flood tide. It is a conspiracy of daughters. It is the nightmare's head impaled on the lance point of a mob mad for peace and for bread. I advance to the region of blue lakes. I advance to the region of sulfur springs. I advance to my crateriform mouth toward which have I struggled enough? What have I to discard? Everything, by God, everything. I am stark naked. I have discarded everything my genealogy, my widow, my companions. I await the boiling. I await the baptism of sperm. I await the wing beat of the great seminal albatross supposed to make a new man of me. I await the immense tap, the vertiginous slap that will consecrate me as a knight of a Plutonian order. I await in the depths of my pores the sacred intrusion of the benediction. And suddenly it is the outpouring of great rivers. It is the friendship of Toucan's eyes. It is the fulminating erection of virgin mountains. I am pregnant with my despair in my arms. I am pregnant with my hunger in my arms and my disgust in my mouth. I am invested. Europe patrols my veins like a pack of filaria at the stroke of midnight to think that their philosophies tried to provide them with morals. That ferocious race won't have put up with it. Europe, pig iron fragment. Europe, low tunnel oozing a bloody dew. Europe, old bag. Europe, Europe, old dog. Europe, worm-drawn coach. Europe, peeling tattoo. Europe, your name is a raucous clucking and a muffled shock. I unfold my handkerchief. It is a flag. I have donned my beautiful skin. I have adjusted my beautiful clawed paws. Europe, I hereby join all that powders the sky with his insolence, all that is loyal and fraternal, all that has the courage to be eternally new, all that knows how to yield its heart to the fire, all that has the strength 
to emerge from an inexhaustible sap all that is calm and certain, all that is not you, Europe, eminent name of the turd. Horse for Pierre Loeb. My horse stumbles over skulls hopscotched in rust. My horse rears in a storm of clouds which are putrefactions of shipwrecked flesh. My horse neighs in the fine rain of roses and sentiments that my blood creates in the scenery of the street fairs. My horse stumbles over the clumps of cacti that are the entangled vipers of my torments. My horse stumbles, neighs, and stumbles toward the curtain of blood of my blood, pulled down on all the pimps shooting craps for my blood. My horse stumbles before the impossible flame of the barrier howled at by the vesicles of my blood. My horse rears before the great pillar of hyacinth perfectly pure, that rises to the glory of the Lord and descends to the depth of the shit of my blood. My horse rears before a barrel lamp made from fireflies peddled by my blood. I saw, too, a great horse of ardent peace that dashed forward pawing the ground from a season of rains, of mollusks, of an anger of hair, of harangue, of pyramids, of a camisole of old corks, of a confusion of mushroom spittle. Great horse, my blood to be spilled in public squares, my blood in which, from time to time, a woman in solar perfection shoots out all her tuberous stems and vanishes in a tornado born on the far side of the world. My blood for a foot freshly repainted as a gibbet, my blood that no canonization has ever soiled, my blood, the wine of a drunkard's vomit. My blood that no paid-off judge has ever heard. I give it to you, great horse. I give you my ears to be made into nostrils <coughs> capable of quivering. My hair to be made into a mane as wild as they come. My tongue to be made into mustang hooves. I give them to you, great horse so that you may approach the extreme limit of brotherhood, the men of elsewhere and of tomorrow, on your back a child of the furrow with barely moving lips, who for you shall disarm the chlorophyllian crumb of the vast crows of the future. And I'll conclude the Césaire poems with barbarity. This is the word that sustains me and strikes against my brass carcass where in the rust garret the moon devours the barbarous bones of cowardly prowling beasts of the lie. Barbarity of rudimentary language and our faces beautiful as the true operative power of negation.
barbarity of the dead circulating in the veins of the earth who at times come to smash their heads against the walls of our ears and the screams of revolt never heard that turn in tune and musical tone. Barbarity, the singular article. Barbarity, the horned lizard. Barbarity, the white amphisbena. Barbarity, I, the spitting cobra, from my putrefying flesh awakening, suddenly a flying gecko, suddenly a fringed gecko. And I adhere so well to the very loci of strength that to forget me, you'll have to throw the hairy flesh of your chest to the dogs. Okay, here are three poems from Anticline, which was published in 2010 by Black Widow Press. Placenta has an epigram. Deep in his heart, man aspires to rejoin the condition he had before consciousness. E.M. Seoran. Where is my placenta buried? Must I know? After all, it is the globe of the origin of my soul. Had I been a quacky oodle, my parents might have exposed my placenta so that ravens could eat it, so that I might gain visionary powers in later life. I dreamt that the first spot of land in the primal waters was a placenta, a floating flat surface attached to a long umbilical stem anchored below. Bodhisattva lotus throne, a sublimated placenta? The Egyptian pharaoh was preceded in processions by his actual placenta fixed to the end of a pole. The first flag? Are the hoardings of pack rats a placenta substitute? Is the function of religion to keep humankind from becoming fully born? Hmm. There is a hmm, a hum, an incipient hymn, a song in food, a hallelujah hint even before baby patter, a Neanderthal lullaby, suck of going in, a sound, a salsa, that sows me to you. The sowing is thee. We are thee'd in sound, treed in nascent omega. I greet what I cannot account for. 
I depart to where I might become an unfiltered phantom facing filtered war. If sound is the heart noise of being, does it have a commonwealth, a gong modality coursing our lives? Cosmic lisp occurs most poignantly before falling asleep. An oyster in shell static, I hear a rapid spewing blood and gold. I am, again, takes on flavor. Breath's arsenal blooms in dreams. Short of non-being, I pause to gaze at conception's regal tinsel, its mire of mirrors, its tilting wetland bulrush miracles. Breath molecules of the dead populate the atmosphere. Adolf H., as well as ayahuasca comrades from the Putamayo. The stuff Wilhelm Reich saw in the blue sky looks like paper clips to me. Bions, he called them, tiny soul packets on the verge. Or precipice, where the living are shaved from the dead, or where the dead transfer, sprinting from one plane to another, Blake bobbing by, Beowulf, triple-eyed and forty-eared. Hmm, deer can hear us talking. Our voices remember resemble the uh-huh of falling fruit. Did desire for reincarnation of the killed animal precede the notion of human immortality? Hmm. Like a sentient water molecule percolating randomly through the soil, lost amidst the tangle of root fibers, I pass through the petiole of a sun-drenched leaf. Now I'm inside the domed roof of a structure made up of lines, a rhizome. Now I am a live canoe, my skin covered with yellow stripes, black diamonds. Inside me are Sultan Muhammad, Pablo Amaringo, Unica Zern, and Cesar Vallejo. Crabs are clutched to my rear. They live as parasites in the anal regions of large aquatic snakes. Zern is pregnant and twisting in pain. When Vallejo tries to soothe her, she bites off his finger, which Amaringo puts in his pocket. Will he plant it? It is said that the yahe plant originated from a sewed finger. Coreless core of the macro entwining the micro. The quantum dot fluorescence image of a mouse kidney section. Dream of green word leaves tumbling inside bright magenta filaments in a royal purple sky. Herzog's blood-red black smoke over burning Kuwait oil fields, a kind of Beethoven bordello. The seeker entwining the thought, the sowed fighting to stay seed. Call of war 
an American headdress for years to come. As if what we are has become war birth, the held-back fetus, our life, in a war womb. When we sense birth, we are war-forthed. Sensation of living within a grimy welkin of unreality. The dusk sky, venereal with stealth. In the nativity rip of the mind, one wanders all one's roads at once. The left foot of King Rameses I resembles a long semi-flat black fish. The toes crawl forth, five black tent caterpillars on their way to a cherry tree feast. From the tips of their abdomens they secrete pheromones so that their relatives detecting these chemical signals can also stream down the trail. From Permian times onward, tent caterpillars have had no god. When they reach a leaf patch at the end of a branch, they snuggle side by side, humming and feeding in unison on a young leaf. Many a tent stead is torn and littered by the shrunken cadavers of larvae killed by braconid wasps. Having detected the buzz of a tachnid's wings, a tent larva swings its body from side to side in a kind of samba, creating a moving target, befuddling the attacker. Fully formed tent caterpillars chew their way out of eggs and sink with their host trees bursting buds. They happily cooperate in many interactive tasks, leaf shelter building, communal basking and mat spinning, anti-predator group displays, trail laying, recruitment to food and basking sites. Tent caterpillars are at the pinnacle of caterpillar social evolution and should never be dissed as walking digestive tracks. They have six eyes, which tragically provide them with no information about the form of an object. However, by swinging their heads, they perceive dark vertical shapes against light-colored backgrounds, much as we would see branches against the sky. They have color vision, ultraviolet light and shades of green. They use the sun as a compass. Successive cycles of body waves propel them forward, carrying along their 16 legs. A typical female may emerge, call males, copulate, lay eggs, and, completely spent, die in less than a day. They love to feed on water tupelo, aspen, water oak, flowering dogwood, and cherry. Their great epic, The Cherry Tree Journey, translated in 1530 by the blessed Persian angel Solrush, describes the journey of the Ortok tentapillar caterpillar 
tent caterpillar clan to retrieve the princess Zal, carried away by a warbler and deposited in a bird citadel in the top of a tall cherry tree. Other enemies are beetles, stink bugs, ants, wasps, chickadees, titmice, blue jays, the Baltimore Oriole, red-winged blackbirds, chebex, wood peewees, phoebes, cuckoos, downy woodpeckers, red-eyed vireos, and the brown-headed cowbird. They have no known friends. Think about this. Any aggregate of birds or animals that cooperated to build communal shelters shared information regarding the location of food patches and had their own epic would be considered a highly social unit. Their sole musical instrument is thought to be the cryptophredium embedded in the walls of their rectums. It has recently been conjectured that the tectiforms engraved and painted on the sides of bison in the upper Paleolithic cave of Font de Gome may have been based on tent caterpillar shelters which may have inspired Cro-Magnon people to construct small hide-covered lodges. The first architects. We must now conclude this brief excursion by crawling back into the toes of Ramesses I's long black fish foot, colonized with the rest of his statue in a glass case, mummy section of the British Museum. Well, that's an easy one because it's a cognate, and the French is truffé. Mm -hmm. right. It just means truffled. So we translate it truffled. <laughs> what are some truffles? <laughs> we didn't make it up. <laughs> no, I mean, as a translator, I try to do versions that are accurate and up to the performance level of the original, and also to create a kind of tonal personality to the translation so that it doesn't read like it was done by a machine. I don't have any particular set of translation theories. Yes? Um, is there a lot of creativity involved in your translations? And is there a lot of what? Is there a lot of creativity involved in your translations? Like um, creation as well as Well, the creativity is to a great extent involved with keeping my creativity out of the translations. Uh, I'm not interested in using translation as a way to sort of work on my own poetry. Uh, I'm not interested in the kind of, say, work that you find in, say, Robert Lowell's imitations, in which the poet Lowell created a kind of a poem that is not really his own, it's not his poetry, but the poems no longer really belong to, say, Baudelaire or Rimbaud or Rilke, because they've been so altered to match rhyme schemes and stuff like that. 
So uh, I have to give you that kind of a response because I, I, I try to uh, keep my creativity out of, of, of the translation so that they still belong to people like Cesare and Vallejo. Afraid of well, I'm not afraid of using the tone. It's just that you can't use the tone of the original when you're translating it, because if you use the tone, you end up with something that's wacky and may sound like the original word, but has nothing to do with the meaning of the original word. I mean, that's one of the reasons that say translating sonnets is such a terrible trap for the translator. I mean, in working on Cesar Vallejo for many, many decades. I, I put off translating the first book, Los Raldos Negros, the Black Heralds, because it's mainly rhyme verse. And finally, I had to face up, if I'm going to do a complete Vallejo, <laughs> I have to do the Black Heralds. So I translated it mainly for meaning. I mean, I tried to, if I was to read you a few of these pieces, I think you might be able to hear a sonnet in the translation, but they did not have, you know, quatrain rhymes marching down the right margin. No. Yes. Well, I was wondering because it, it sounded interesting. Could you give an example of places where you couldn't use the original tone because it would sound wacky in English, and so you had to invent uh, another somehow corresponding? Well, you can hardly ever use the original tone. Mm -hmm. No, because I mean, the, 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 occasionally you get you get cognates like mm -hmm. like Michael brought up. You know, true faith or truffled. You know, doesn't sound quite like it, but you you hear the original in the in the translation. But uh, no, I think you have to give up on that on on the sound. I mean, I try to create sort of a sound drama as much as is possible in the line in English. That's where, what I mean by saying bringing the translation up to the performance level, so that you're hearing something that's exciting and has kind of like a, a human voice, you know, surging through it, uh, and doesn't sound like it was, you know machine made but uh, no uh, I guess by tone I, I think I misinterpreted you um, it sounds now like you mean the uh, the oral quality of the, of the poem like alliteration accidents that sort of thing and that's one question well, I thought when you were talking about tone that you meant sort of more like let's say the original has a very colloquial tone a very kind of uh, a, a maybe um uh, slang tone. Then, you know, in the, in the English, do you look for, I'm not saying that that's true of Césaire, but I mean just in general. No, Césaire is very formal. Okay. Césaire's yeah. right. heroes are Mallarmé and Baudelaire. Yeah. That's the company that he general, writes into. It's a more general question about tone. I mean, you know, I mean there's occasionally a slang phrase, mm -hmm. and often that's where I'm completely dependent upon my co-translator if I have one because my French and my Spanish are not fluent. And I've, uh, I've never really spent long years in, in French or Spanish societies. So I'm pretty weak on slime. So I have to depend on Jim Arnold or Annette Smith or something for that. Yeah? So maybe, just to speak about a word, turd. Yeah. Uh, at the end of Etron. Etron, yeah. okay. Turd, eternal. Boom. Turd, there you go. Okay. <laughs> no way to avoid that one. <laughs> you could say piece of shit, but you see that would be a slight mm -hmm. misuse of the of the. Uh, sure. sure. Yeah. yeah. No, he changed that into hiccup. Mm. You see, uh, that's a real back off. <laughs> that's a real back off. Yeah. 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 
No, he thought as he became more politically involved and more of a statesman that he had been way too obscure, blasphemous, erotic, etc. In his, as an early writer. So, you know, there are three versions of Notebook of Return to the Native Land. And the first version is very surrealist. At the time that Annette Smith and I translated it, we translated the 1956 version, and we had never read the earlier versions. Now, Jim Arnold, my co-translator for Solar Throat Slice, thinks that all of the early Césaire should be translated. It's not going to be by me, because I'm finished with Césaire. This is my bowing out, Solar Throat Slice, you know. But, um, yeah. You were saying last night that you were you had difficulty with the French, um, the people who have the rights to the Césaire materials. How were you able to re now uh, translate the rest of... Uh, Solar throat slash. What, how did you get those rights returned? Did this, was it Cesare's death that made it possible? Cesare's death made it possible. The Cesare family is extremely permissive, and uh, I just, I just, when when we decided to do Solar Throat Slash, we put the thing to Wesleyan, and I think that Wesleyan probably contacted Gallimard, mm -hmm. which owned the 1948 uh, Sole Cucupé. Uh, for many years, translation of Césaire was complicated by this small press in Paris called Presence Africaine, uh, which was started for one reason, to publish Césaire, but it was run by sort of haughty white English people, if you can imagine, Presence Africaine, run by haughty white English people. And they thought that everybody was making a fortune off of their books, so their, their, their royalties and advance demands were really terrible. So the, the book that you're teaching, the version of Notebook Return to the Native Land, you know, has no French text. And that's because Wesleyan refused to pay them something like $5,000 for, for the French, to use the French text. So we had to do it in English only. But the French is available in the UC press. Course. Yes. Is that right? Yes. And that's something I forgot to mention in class. Yes. Yeah. Yes. You again. <laughs> Yes. I was wondering if you would divulge any meaning or message uh, in that poem. <laughs> well, it's a sort of a playful poem on uh, various images of placentas and the way that placenta seems to have figured into history and into uh, the spiritual world. And also, it's, uh, the, as I was working through the poem, I sort of saw the last line coming. And I began to think that the poem is, is, exists to set up that last line statement, uh, which I'll read again to you. If Is the function of religion to keep humankind from becoming fully born? I think it's a thoughtful question. <laughs> Something to take home with you. <laughs> Anything else? Okay, thanks for coming. Thank you for your very kind introduction.